This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Okay, welcome to our um, Bible study this evening. As you probably know, we're reading through and studying the book of Acts. Yeah, please uh, take um, a copy of the notes from last week and the map, which we'll just uh, refer to a little bit today, not as, not as much as we did last week. Okay, last week we were looking at Acts chapter 20. We got kind of halfway through. And we're going to pick up more or less where we left off last time. Um, but just to do our normal introduction, uh, we're looking at, at the Acts of the Apostles, but with a particular emphasis on the Acts of the Holy Spirit and how that is revealed. And in the second half of Acts chapter 20, there'll be some more kind of talking points around the work of the Holy Spirit that there weren't really in the first half. But I mean, that's, that's what we're finding in Acts is that some places speak and attribute things to the Holy Spirit and other places that doesn't happen. So um, uh, let's make a start and um, anyone like to pray? If not, I'm happy to do it. No, okay, I'll, I'll pray. Father, we thank you for this time set aside to come before your word, Lord. And we pray that you would honour us by your presence and that your Holy Spirit would like, uh, guide us into understanding and an appreciation more of your character and your will for us. So Lord, we pray that you'd bless our discussions and our readings together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Right, we shall, uh, you, what we want to have is the uh, summary sheet from last week and we're going to read through that to, uh, to help provide a, a record of what we did last week and set the context. So Acts chapter 20 concludes Paul's almost three-year spell at Ephesus and describes his subsequent travels in the Roman provinces of Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia. Much of his activity is glossed over in a few verses, but with a couple of events highlighted. Luke, like any historian, needs to be selective about what he includes. And chapters 19 and 20 would indicate that he included unusual or significant events uh, like healings and miracles and the near riot that happened at Ephesus. But not much really about Paul's regular work of teaching, pastoring and church planting. Chapters 19 to 21 verse 16 cover Paul's third missionary journey in which he returns to many of the same cities and fellowships he visited in his previous journey, which is covered in Acts chapters 16, 17 and 18. A large part of his work in his second journey was the establishing of the church in Corinth, whereas on his third journey, the largest amount of time, three years, in fact, as he says in verse 31, was spent in Ephesus in Asia. From carefully reading 1 and 2 Corinthians, we can determine that Paul wrote these letters during and just after his time in Ephesus. Luke, however, makes no mention of them in Acts, 
But being aware of them helps us understand some of the background situations and the things that were affecting Paul at this time. So Paul is informed about issues in the church at Corinth. So he writes 1 Corinthians and sends Timothy to them as his representative. And we can see this noted in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And at the end of the letter, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells the church of his travel plans and his hope to again spend some time with them. But the news back from Corinth is very concerning, which results, it would appear, in a visit by Paul, plus a strongly worded letter, which hasn't been preserved. The outcome of this is that though Paul really wants to visit them, he's not sure how he will be received. So he sends Titus on ahead to find out. Now all this happens during the latter part of Paul's time in Ephesus, around AD 54 to 55. So verses 2 and 3 of chapter 20 probably cover a year or more. In outline, what we can glean from Paul's letters is that he heads north from Ephesus to Troas, looking for Titus, but doesn't find him. And he, he records this in 2 Corinthians 2. He then crosses to Macedonia by sea, meets up with Titus, and is greatly reassured by his report from Corinth. He then writes 2 Corinthians and sends Titus back to make preparations for the gifts they are collecting to take to the church at Jerusalem. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 has a fair bit to say about that. As well as visiting the churches that we know about in Philippi, Thessalonica and Berea, he no doubt visited others that he had been established since his previous journey about five years before. We read in Romans that at this time he also travelled west to the Adriatic coast and then north taking the gospel to Illyricum is probably a new name to most people but that's the Adriatic coast so on your maps that is the kind of the top left hand corner but that that's the uh, sometimes called Dalmatia but uh, yeah yeah well Albania is pretty good in terms of a guide of what we're talking about and then Paul then travels south to Greece and spends the winter in Corinth and it's here that he writes the letter of Romans so you see, within this period we're talking about, a period of maybe two years, he wrote the three longest letters we're talking about, 1 and 2 Corinthians and the letter to the Romans, in this period that, around this time in Ephesus. He tells them in his letter that he longs to visit Rome and then on to regions further west, but he first needs to take the gifts to the poor at Jerusalem. He intended to travel directly by sea back to Israel, as he did on his second journey, just straight across. But because of a plot against him, he travels back through Macedonia, kind of the way he came. He has a team of seven people from the three main areas of his ministry, which are Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia, who are carrying the gifts. And as well as representing those churches, they no doubt provide security in numbers. So on the way, uh, traveling through Macedonia, Paul joins up with Luke in Philippi. This is indicated by the use of the words we or us in the text. For the rest of the book of Acts, Luke is with Paul or at least nearby. 
They cross by ship from Neapolis to Troas, where they join the rest of the team and spend a week there with the church. Paul has a lot he wants to tell them, perhaps because his previous time at Troas was too short. You know, that was the occasion when he was looking for Titus and felt at e- Ill at ease and wanted to travel on looking for him, really concerned about the situation in Corinth. So I think there was kind of a, a backlog of things that Paul wanted to talk about. So we see this account. He speaks with them all evening and then all the way through the night. And it's here we have the story of a lad who falls asleep while Paul is talking and falls out of a window from the third floor. Luke is clear that he died from the fall, but Paul prays for him in a way that's very reminiscent of Elijah and Elisha when they, they raised from the dead the son of, uh, of a widow that, you know, each of them had similar situations and brought their son back to life. And this lad is taken up alive, much to everyone's relief. And, Paul, and Luke tells us his name, Eutychus, which means lucky or fortunate. And I think this is just to bring a smile to the faces of those who hear the story. I mean, you know, maybe they know who Eutychus is, but it just, you know, when you know what it means, it does make you smile. Having taught and spoken all night, Paul chooses to walk the 20 miles overland to the next port of Assos, where he rejoins the ship. I mean, this shows real dedication, you know, having pulled an all-nighter, and then he walks 20 miles. And I think it's probably so that he can spend some quality time as he walks with a few of the church leaders. So in the boat and down to the next port of call at Ephesus. Now, Paul understandably wants to meet with the Ephesian elders, but doesn't want to get drawn into a long visit because he's keen to get to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. So he summons them from Miletus. Okay, so that's, that finishes our summary, our roundup from last week. Um, so just to put this in some kind of context, we're talking about AD 57, if, for people who like that kind of information. Um, so what we'll do is we'll read this uh, second half of Acts chapter 20 in our usual way, reading round one verse each. doesn't matter which version or language you have. We'll do our best to follow in what we have in front of us. Um, so I'll start and then on to Michelle. Uh, I'll start reading from verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they arrived in Clare, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured a trial that came to me from the plot of the Jews. Serve the Lord with an humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the land in which of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. 
solemnly testifying both to Jews and to Greeks repentance unto God in faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Except that the Holy Spirit tells me the city of the city, that jail and suffering lie ahead. But I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the good news of God's grace. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify on this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own souls will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. I counted men and silver, or gold, or apparel. <coughs> yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. In all things I have shown you by example that toiling in this way, we ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. They all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. Grieving especially because of what he had said, they would not see him again. Then they brought him to the ship. Yep, that's great, thanks. Okay, um, as we like to do any initial impressions of that passage anything strikely that you hadn't kind of seen before sounds like Paul is winding down there <laughs> yeah yeah um, well it's it comes across as a very kind of emotional event doesn't it especially at the end Very aware of the fact that there's going to be a lot of false teaching of vicious rules. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, look at that in a bit more detail, but uh, yeah, and he's not wrong, is what we find. And that's applicable to us today as well. Yes, the specifics of the problems vary but you can be sure that it'll never go away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and some heresies or some kind of misunderstandings continue to repeat, they keep coming round, you know. So, um, so in that way, you know, the, there's old stuff and new stuff.
to deal with. Um, okay, so as I said, in, the, in this passage, did you notice there are several references to the Holy Spirit and we'll look to see if they demonstrate the work of the Holy Spirit in a different way than we've seen uh, previously in the book of Acts. So as I said, I'm, I'm kind of recovering again verse 16 just to help with the context from last week. Um, so as I said, well, um, oh, I'll, I'll read the verse. For Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Firstly, that seems a little bit unusual is that they paid for a fare on the ship and then Paul seems to be able to decide which ports he calls at. Um, usually you would think that you know, you did, the people on board didn't have a choice. But I think, and it's, not, it's a reasonable assumption, that this is a small ship that just hops between ports around the coast, stays very close to the coast. And it may well be that the nine people in their party constituted the majority of people that were being carried. So therefore they could decide which ports they called at. Um, and this, uh, this year, as I said, it was uh, AD 57, and about 25 years since the momentous day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And so we see this note that, that Paul is endeavouring to get to Jerusalem by the um, day of Pentecost. And I'm sure for those early dis disciples, Pentecost in Jerusalem would have been a great celebration whatever the year. Uh, it doesn't have to be kind of a round number like 25, like we usually consider. Um, but there's an extra aspect to this because Paul is bringing with him this really generous gift of money, which is representing a kind of harvest of his work amongst the key areas of his ministry. So that includes, just take your um, maps. So it includes Galatia, if you can see that in the middle of Turkey. So he, he did, a, his first missionary journey took him around here. So there's a series of churches Paul established in Galatia, and we know obviously he writes a letter to them. And the other area is Asia, and obviously his main work there was in Ephesus, and we've read about that recently. And, um, and then we have in Macedonia and Achaia as well. So um, these are Paul's main area of interest, and what he's done is he's um, encouraged churches in all these regions to understand that it's good and appropriate that they reciprocate the blessings back to Jerusalem that they have received from what happened there and what flows from there. And, and even he, um, he does a bit of playing one church off against another and says to the people in Corinth, look, the people in, in Macedonia, and they, they gave fantastically generously. See if you can beat them. You know, that kind of encouragement. You know. um, because he, know, he knows they'll be blessed by their generosity. Now, the other thing about uh, Pentecost, it's one of the feasts of first fruits in the Jewish calendar. And uh, in terms of the biblical feast days set out in Leviticus chapter 23. In fact, there are two feasts of first fruits. One is the first fruits of the barley harvest, which falls within the week of unleavened bread. So it, what is commonly referred to as Passover. And then, there's this second uh, Feast of First Fruits, 
Shavuot, Pentecost, which is the wheat harvest. Um, so the, this is when the first fruits of those two harvests are presented, and then as an anticipation and a thankfulness towards God for the fullness of the harvest. And then, obviously, the fullness of the harvest comes is is celebrated in Sukkot. It just and we've just seen that happen around us. But the yeah, I just want to return to the this idea of the two first fruits. Uh, I, I sometimes have the opportunity to teach some students back in our home church in the UK, and one question I ask them is, okay, so who knows which? Biblical feast corresponds to Easter Day. And um, actually, I asked this question of the theologians because I think it's actually, sadly, too hard a question for most people. Uh, and people say, oh, Passover. And the answer is, hmm, yes, yeah, sort of, but really but that only corresponds to Good Friday because Passover was really just a day. It's actually, and clearly you can see this coming, it's the Feast of First Fruits which corresponds to Easter Day. And would anybody like to suggest what kind of first fruits is being represented on that day? Resurrection. That's right. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Um, first born of the entire new creation. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's um, an amazing thing. So it, it's. It, but as a festival, it gets kind of downplayed. It gets kind of absorbed into the unleavened bread week. And but the, if if you read Leviticus chapter twenty-three very carefully, and I think this is really cool, um, that you will see that it states that this day shall be celebrated on the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover. So if you can do a bit of mental arithmetic there, what day of the week is the day after the Sabbath? The Sunday. So the Lord is saying there in that passage in Leviticus 23 that this, this first fruits will be celebrated every year on a Sunday in the week of unleavened bread. And then we have another festival which is exactly seven weeks later, the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, Pentecost. And so that means what day is that going to be always on? A Sunday. Uh, although in history it's not quite that simple. The, uh, there was all sorts of debates and misunderstandings about actually how to interpret that. And actually mm, the, the, the Pharisees ended up thinking it, the, the Sabbath is being referred to as the first day of Pentecost. Anyway, so they'd celebrate it at a, on a fixed date rather than a fixed day of the week. And this is the only occasion when I find myself agreeing with the Sadducees because they're the guys who decided it should be always on the first day of the week. Uh, that, that's, that's an odd one. And then the Essenes had a different idea and the uh, Karaites another idea. Anyway, so, but that's uh, a kind of side note on the uh, Feast of First Fruits. So Pentecost then is a different kind of First Fruits. So what, what First Fruits is that? I mean... The Holy Spirit. Yes. Sorry? The Holy Spirit baptism. Yes, it's... Yeah and resulted in the first fruits of the harvest of the church, you know, of the, of the church coming and 3,000 people were saved in one day or brought into the kingdom. Yeah. So you can see why that, you know, 
there will be multiple reasons why Paul is wanting to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And just to bless the community there with this gift as well, which represents the harvest of his work in and, in and around the uh, diaspora and the Gentiles. So, uh, so I'll just carry on with verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So as we read last week and had a little reminder that in Troas, he was there he was a, a week in Troas and one particular day was really, really busy. One uh, that day when he preached all night. But the point is that Ephesus would have been even busier if he'd called in there with many more people wanting to see him. Basically, they would have been queuing around the block to try and have some time with Paul. So I don't think it's difficult to kind of join the dots and say this is what was going on. So he, he skipped calling in at Ephesus, the port of Ephesus, and went to the next one south called Miletus. And you can see them, they're both mentioned, you can see them on the coast there um, on the map. So what he did, he summoned the people to come to him uh, as they, they were in the port. And it was something like 30 miles between Ephesus and Miletus and um, probably two, two days' walk. So he would have, you know, it would have taken two days to get the message to them and then two days for them to walk back. So he had a bit of a breather then. But um, at least it meant that he could maybe manage that time better. You know, he was probably able to stick to um, having a bit of uh, a bit of a rest plus knowing that he could manage this within a week that it wouldn't put his time scale back too badly um, now in this um, uh, well we'll pick this thought up later as well but he the, the leadership of the church in Ephesus are referred to as elders um, but actually, later on in the passage, he refers to them as overseers. Uh, and so the Greek for elders is presbyteroi, and overseers is episkopoi. And then, but then the, way, the way he then talks about them is that he uses an illustration of pastoring, shepherding. So we really have three words here that effectively overlap in the way Paul uses them in this section. And um, I mean, Church leadership is kind of debated and quite a divergent issue in how to organise churches and different things work for different cultures. But um, uh, it seems that uh, there's not a lot of point in arguing about the difference between these things. Really, the, the key thing is actually how to do it and how to pass for the church in a godly way. The titles really matter much less. Um, Okay, in verse 18, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the, the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, and then serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So this is the beginning of this address that Paul is giving to uh, the elders and the leaders within the church at Ephesus. Uh, and it's the only one uh, in Acts where he's speaking to only believers. We have quite a few examples where, uh, you know, he's preaching to, you know, a sermon in, um, 
in Athens where he's speaking at the Areopagus and, and other talks that he's done. Um, but this is one which is quite different where he's talking to people who are already kind of within a church uh, and, and also leaders who, where he could, um, in other words, in, introduce much more biblical content. Because you'll notice that in previous t- um, talks that are recorded in Acts that he really doesn't quote scripture very much when he's talking to uh, Gentiles. Well, and that's understandable. You know, you have to uh, explain things from where people are at, you know, and he quotes Greek philosophers to those who will appreciate that. Um, but in this section here, we've got um, quite a lot of biblical references and we'll pick up on a number of them. Um, and L- Luke, obviously, I think is the eyewitness and I think Luke is taking the notes here. And uh, being a doctor, as uh, this is reasonable to assume, that he's accomplished at writing and also taking summary, you know, life histories, you know, um, trying to get from someone an account of how their illness is and what they've done and how come. So this skill is showing through here that he is able to get a lot of information down, but then he selects and smooths out the account. Because obviously this, I'm sure, knowing Paul, that this talk would have taken an hour or two, and we can read it in three minutes or something. So, but actually, Paul, uh, Luke has managed to condense an awful lot of things in a, in a very short space, um, which I'm very appreciative of. And actually, because writing was a fairly expensive operation, at least writing on parchment, or, and particularly vellum, um, you know, you, did, you probably avoided being verbose, particularly if it was a letter that you were sending to people. Well, and this, this is a kind of letter, this treatise, is, he's sending it to um, this chap called Theophilus. And so basically, it helps to have a, to, to not have flab in the account, you know, so uh, including what is necessary and omitting what isn't is an important part of doing this kind of thing. So the other thing that comes through in this verse is that Paul, sometimes people envisage Paul as kind of a dominating, powerful presence, but these verses show his tender and emotional side, where he talks about um, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and with the trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And this is not so obvious to us, but the idea of humility is um, is really not a highly regarded virtue in the Greco-Roman world. It was considered effectively the same as weakness. But Paul has learned his servant leadership from Jesus and what, what humility is about. Um, and who, yes, and meekness and humility are, are kind of an overlapping terms. Who was described as the meekest man on earth? Moses, Moses yeah. And clearly, in, in the character of Moses, meekness is not weakness. Clearly very different. I think one characteristic of meekness is to accept fully God's estimate of yourself. You know, to to accept 
how much greater God is than you. And so Moses was that kind of man. He believed what God said. And there was no doubt in his mind about, in his communications with God, that what he was receiving was absolute truth. Um, rather than being argumentative or, you know, too analytical about it. Now, um, Paul mentions there those, uh, the plots of the Jews um, and whether he's referring to things that were specifically happened in Ephesus or more generally. Um, now, we don't have any actual plots that are recorded by Luke relating to the um, time in Ephesus, although there is this episode of the, um, the near riot uh, at, at the end of um, chapter 19. But the curious thing about that is that Paul is almost not involved. Yes. Do you do you kind of take that as a metaphorical thing for um, just spiritual battles? I don't know. I always took a literal. There's no clue to it. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I mean, it's in the list of you know, night of the day and the deep, five times, etc., uh, etc. Et thought lions. I mean, all the other things seem to be a little bit Yeah, But, I mean, for all know, we, that may have been an idiom to, to, you know, to describe the most severe of uh, mental struggles. Anyway. Um, on, to, on to verse 20. And Paul goes on to say, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember, we have this uh, note in Acts chapter 19, what he's referring to, that teaching in public would probably have included his renting of the hall of Tyrannus. And the um, my Bible has a footnote and this, the... Uh, expanded version of Acts tells us that he rented it from 11 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon for two years and he probably gave himself one day off a week but that's still an an enormous amount of work and then he says and then house to house and so this probably refers to the evening gatherings where he's going around where people you know at the end of the day and whether it's one or several churches I imagine there'll be several places that he would have visited families and larger groups just house to house having meals with them and then teaching them and answering questions and doing all sorts of things so that was the evening and the morning well I think he was working and earning money so morning working at his trade tent mating Middle of, the, middle of the day, lecturing and teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus, and evening, visiting houses and apartments for fellowship and teaching. Busy day. Hard work. And he goes on to say, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now this this phrase, constrained by the Spirit, uh, some, so you'll have maybe words like um, compelled or 
bound. Bound, yeah. literally. Yeah. Having been bound. Yeah. In spirit. And it, so this, I mean, bound is the one that's probably the, carries the imagery better, but the imagery of being chained or tied up like a prisoner. So think about it. So we're talking about this sense of um, constraint, severe as to calling it a binding by the spirit. Not really knowing um, what's going to happen at Jerusalem, except that the Holy Spirit testifies that in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's pretty heavy duty stuff. But I wonder if the Spirit is very strong. Yeah. Um, the pressure of the sense of the Spirit of God's love, as opposed to counter the body of the Spirit, that what was awaiting them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we've got here some, an aspect of the spirit that we've not encountered before in the narrative this far in Acts. That, that Paul can talk about the spirit in this way, of constraining and binding himself towards a course of action. Um, and as we read on through the next chapters, we'll find out you know, he has opportunities to bail out, but doesn't take them. In verse 22, it's found in the spirit, smallest, but then in 23, it talks about the Holy Spirit, capitalist. Uh, okay, what, what do people think? Uh, do we think that the, um, those two verses is referring to the spirit, capital S, or do you think it's how? I, I think that the first verse, Paul is describing his inner reality in which he perceives himself being bound in the spirit. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, were working together, I'm sure. The second verse is describing the phenomenon that is going to go on all the time until he arrives in Jerusalem, which other people are prophesying by the Spirit mm -hmm. and telling him what's going to happen to him. Yeah. So yeah. he is talking about his inner reality, whereas they are prophesying by the same Spirit, the external reality. And the, the differences of opinion is only about what the subsequent course of action should be implied. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, thanks, th thanks, Aria. That, that's that's helpful. Um, so you're saying that it's better to understand that the uh, in verse 22 about being constrained by the spirit, being um, kind of how he felt within he his own spirit. I have I have been bound in spirit. Uh, is what he's saying here to go to Jerusalem. Okay. Now that's an inner reality that he is acting out. But the next one is clearly other people yeah. prophesying in every city. So yeah. It's, uh, it's both internal and external. Yeah. And I think because those two uh, phrases are you know, very close, and that using Holy Spirit in one and Spirit in another means that talking about a different kind of reality, as Aria explains. And um, so we're talking, I think um, it's fair to say that the Holy Spirit would have revealed directly to uh, Paul as well as via um, these prophets in. Uh, in various places, and we'll see that happens in as the story develops in chapter 21. Uh, so for example, there's um, there are prophets in Tyre, uh, verse 4 of 21, and Agabus later on in chapter 21, and presumably also there were prophets in Corinth and Philippi and Troas that said the same kind of things. Um, uh, yeah. So, and any other reflections about? that characteristic of the spirit? 
I mean, basically um, warning about uh, tough stuff ahead. And in some ways, you can say, well, Jesus did that quite a lot, you know, particularly in his Olivet Discourse. In other words, Matthew chapter 24, you know, when he, he spoke about the future and um, saying in brief that things are going to get pretty bad and there will be a time of tribulation like there has never been before on earth, but the time will be shortened for the sake of the elect. And he'll say, you know, you'll be dragged to prison, persecuted, you know, and treated abominably and and martyred, you know, and you know, suffer uh, terribly. So Jesus, by the Spirit, clearly, is talking about some really tough stuff that will confront that generation in, in the uh, last days there. And, uh, and the Revelation kind of, expand, the book of Revelation expands on that um, in some detail. Um, but always with the intention of being that the believers are forewarned and therefore forearmed about how to deal with this kind of trouble. Um, but also to say that, you know, when this is over, when you have overcome, then you can enter into the fullness of the God's peace that, like you've never known before. So that, that's the context in which Jesus um, uh, teaches and warns about uh, dire things up ahead, which we don't quite, you know, don't really know when it's going to happen. But people apply his warnings, and there have been some pretty serious times of persecution in the church throughout the world in different times and different places. Um, and Jesus. The fact that he addressed this for, for his people is a, an enormous sense of um, reassurance that our master knew what would happen and would be, and by the Spirit, is, you know, with his people through all these things and will enable them both to give a strong witness and to remain faithful throughout. Okay, so moving on to uh, verse 24. And Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So I just love the way Paul leads from the front in everything. And we... Last week we read a bit about uh, Paul's thorn in his flesh, how the Lord revealed to him that he would have this really, these tough circumstances wherever he went, you know, hardships, persecutions, calamities, uh, would follow him around or greet him as he arrived in a place. Um, and uh, so in the sense that actually the Lord, what the Lord is telling Paul is in all things, in particular in terms of persecution, I want you to leave from the front. In other words, face it, deal with it, and overcome it. I mean, when, when we're reading through Acts, we see just so many occasions that things blow up when Paul turns up in town. And 
I think it's to do with the power of the spirit that was embodied with him. And also he was maybe a bit of a bombastic character, you know, someone who was really up for it, you know. Someone wants to debate, yeah, I'll take him on. You know, all comers, you know. Just, he'd just love to, to the kind of, the challenge of rhetoric, you know, debating with people, he would have been definitely up for that. But then, and, and the debates were really quite forceful and forthright, which would mean that people get offended. And, and worse, and that's what happened. So Paul led from the front in all of these things. Both when did Paul die? How many years between now and Okay, well, uh, I think that we get to chapter 28 and he's in prison, house arrest in Rome for two years. And I think he's acquitted of that situation because the early church fathers um, testify to that, that he was released from that. And also, um, we have other indirect evidence. So, for example, his letters to Titus and Timothy, these pastoral epistles, talk about places and circumstances that we cannot fit into anywhere that we read in Acts. So, for example, Titus is in Crete. Well, we don't read that um, Paul had any kind of missions to Crete. I mean, he calls in there on his journey to Rome. But, um, and, um, and other things as well. So putting those two together and other kind of evidence is that Paul was released from that imprisonment, which would be about, I think, AD 64, enabled him to do some more years. And I think um, the um, church fathers tell us also that he did achieve his ambition to go to the west part of the Mediterranean, to, um, uh, to Spain. Um, and then uh, and returned uh, uh, back again. And then got caught up in persecution later on in Nero's reign in AD, around, probably died AD 67, 66, around then, I think would be, we, we can't really be certain. So but, 10 years after but, this. Yeah, 10 years after this, yeah. Um, because that would, the persecution wasn't across the Roman Empire, but you know we know from lots of evidence, contemporary evidence at the time, that Nero's persecution of the Christians was pretty bad news for them. You know, blaming the, blaming the Christians for the fire in Rome, and we know exactly when that happened. That was AD 64. In fact, we we know the date. Yeah. So, um, and what I want to do is to. Um, for me, this verse 24 echoes what he writes in his letter to the Philippians. So let's turn over to Philippians chapter 3 and just uh, just pick up on that wording there and just see how it resonates. So um, Philippians chapter 3. Verses 8 to 11, I think it is uh, what I'll read. Um, no, I think I started it earlier. But these, this is a very familiar passage. But just look out for these, the themes that we're talking about. Um, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, in other words, as, as a Pharisee, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews and of the tribe of Benjamin and so on, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you see that this, this fragrance of his abandonment of self, wanting to become like Jesus? Um, and just to explain maybe, some people sometimes misunderstand that phrase, attain the resurrection there. The resurrection, I think, in that context is being used as shorthand for life in all its perfection. Uh, so what we should all attain for is sanctification more and more and more to be more like the Lord while we're on earth. In other words, aim for nothing short of life in all its perfection. And a shorthand way of referring to that is resurrection because resurrection will be like that, the resurrected life. So he's not kind of trying to earn a resurrection from the dead, but trying to... Um, follow Jesus to the end point of where he leads and obviously then he goes on to say not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect so you know using that word perfect as a parallel to the idea of resurrection but I press on to make it my own so yes you're getting this uh, this parallel kind of thought because Paul is addressing as I said before a group of church leaders so he's able to touch on these kind of themes like he wouldn't do when he's just taught talking in a kind of evangelistic context. So now, um, back to uh, chapter 20, verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So this was really couched as a farewell address which is what makes it so emotional in those um, in that uh, last verse of the chapter in verse 38 now you notice he's um, he uses this phrase innocent of the blood and this is an, an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 33 so uh, we're going to turn to that and just pick up on this just um, because I don't think we know Ezekiel by heart around here, do we? No, okay. So, although some of us might not might be familiar with this passage and then, uh, this chapter and the next one, 33 and 34. <coughs> so, um, uh, this is the Lord speaking to um, Ezekiel in his role as Israel's watchman. So I'll, I'll read this just for simplicity. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. 
But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but the blood, his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. So it's this idea of being innocent of the blood because he, Paul has acted with the Ephesians um, as telling them all that he was able to, conveying the whole counsel of God and telling them of the challenges and the things to watch out for. So because of that, he's able to say that he's innocent of their blood. And he's talking about his role amongst them as a watchman. So this uh, alluding to, which means kind of hinting at scriptures, was a common way that the Pharisees spoke and taught. I mean, it's one of the things that marks out this speech of Paul compared with a, a number of the other ones. He's, he's hinting at scriptures and he's expecting people to basically pick up these references. And Jesus does this an awful lot. I mean, we, we know that Paul still considers him a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. He still has this ingrained attitude and amongst those who know the scriptures, he can mix it with the best of them. He, you know, and mixing all sorts of, stringing all sorts of scriptures together by just hinting at them most of the time. And, but Jesus frequently did this. Um, there were occasions when it was necessary to quote verbatim from the scriptures. And an example of that would be when he was dealing with Satan in the wilderness. He quoted verbatim three passages from the book of Deuteronomy. So there was no misunderstanding. Although Satan knows the scriptures as well. But, uh, and I'll give you an example of, one of my favorite examples of how Jesus alludes to scriptures. Um, this comes from Matthew chapter 10 at the end of the chapter. And he's preparing his disciples to go out on a mission two by two through the land of Israel. And he um, reassures them that they'll be okay. You know, he tells them, you know, what to take and what not to take and so on and how to, carry, how to conduct themselves and how, how to stay and how to greet people. And then he says, um, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives the one that sent me. And he then goes on to say, whoever receives a prophet because they are a prophet will receive the reward of a prophet. And whoever receives the righteous because they are righteous will receive the reward of the righteous. Now Jesus is alluding to two Old Testament stories here. Hands up, have we, have we picked up what they are? Who received yeah. someone because they were a prophet? The widow. The widow, which particular one? Elijah. Okay, Eli yes, the widow of Zarephath, Elijah. Well done, that's good. And so she received him because she knew that he was a prophet of the Lord. And she, she got the reward. What was the reward? To receive food and drink during the drought. She shared with Elijah the miraculous provision of food, which was the reward of the prophet. Okay, that's, that's cool. And then the second one. So who do you think, which story in the Old Testament would be like people who were called righteous and were received because they were righteous by someone? This, is, this one's harder to work out. 
at least not so clear. Okay. Sorry? Sorry? Okay. No, no, I'm, I'm talking about, he, he's, he's referring to an Old Testament story here, not the, the, the scriptures. He's alluding to scriptures, not kind of current events or um, whether that would have been, I don't know whether before or after. Yeah, so I think what he's alluding to here is Rahab in Jericho. The two spies are sent out to spy out the land and she receives them because she knows that the Lord is with his people and that the Lord will lead his people to conquer the whole land of Canaan. She knows that's going to happen. And so she received the spies because they are on mission of the Lord. And she hides them. She misdirects the guys that are chasing them. And she says, look, tell you, go back this way around and you'll get back safe. And she says, remember me when you come and destroy the city. And so they have this arrangement there. She puts this red, red thread out of her window and, and the... And the spies say, look, everyone that's, all your whole family, gather them in this house and they will be safe. And so she, because she received these two men, because they were righteous, in other words, they were on, on the mission of the Lord, she received the reward of the righteous, which was to live in the land. And not only that, she gets more than that. She ends up in the genealogy of the Lord. So... Um, so in context, when Jesus, uh, this is an example of just Jesus alluding to scriptures, and he's expecting people to pick up on this. And so the point he's trying to make to his disciples is that, you know, the Lord knows a thing or two about looking after his people when they're on mission for, in his name. He really does know how to do that. But I particularly like also that Jesus handpicks these two stories because they are about women and foreigners but not just women and foreigners, they are about women at the bottom of the heap. One's a widow and one's a prostitute. And it's as if he's saying that not only does the Lord know how to look after his people on mission, but he's able to surprise you with stuff that you would never think would happen. He's able to abundantly overflow with mercy towards you people that you would not think were in line for it. I just love the way he handpicks these two stories to tell his his um, uh, disciples, you know, you're safe, you're okay, you're under the hand of the Lord. Don't worry. And maybe watch out for the things that the Lord is going to do through you. Okay, so that was a kind of an aside about illusion, but it's kind of fun stuff. Um, now, this phrase, the whole counsel of God, is clearly... To embark on that is a seriously major undertaking, both to have the range of understanding of what constitutes the whole counsel of God, as well as the courage to communicate it. Because you will find in lots of churches, there's kind of the stock concepts that they will um, cover, you know, year in, year out. But there's other stuff which they don't go near, because it's either controversial or too difficult or just they don't feel confident to, to talk about it but so for one person to have this capability within themselves to not only have the knowledge but also to deliver it it's quite remarkable so I mean people might think that they could attain to that level but I think it's more realistic in most churches to aim at this task in other words of conveying the whole counsel of God 
by using a number of different teachers and pastors with a different range of gifts. So, you know, people can have different perspectives and different strengths to bring to this, this whole idea. And, um, and some churches do try and take on this idea of within a three-year period covering all the things that they want to and then recap after that, you know, re- recap in three-year cycles, which is not a bad model to follow. But, it, but the real challenge is actually covering it, you know, and, and delivering it. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, an, that's just another reason why team ministry is so much better than, you know, one man at the top or one woman at the top. Uh, things can go wrong more easily under those situations, as well as finding it much harder to do the best thing for the, to, for the congregation, for the flock. Talking about flocks, let's move on to uh, verse 28. Pay, atten- pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I referred to this verse earlier because it's using this word overseer, which is a secular word out of Greek um, commerce. In other words, you know, the, the guy in charge, uh, whether it's kind of a, a, a store or a boat. You know, so he's, um, um, there are different places where we've come across in secular writing the use of um, this word, uh, uh, episcopoi. But the, um, not to focus on the word, but more to the analogy is, is the one of the flock and to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. But the thing to, to notice here is that the, even though Paul obviously appoints leaders and elders in church, it's the, the authority to lead and to shepherd comes from the Holy Spirit. That's really, and we see maybe the first instance of this in Acts chapter 13, where Paul and Barnabas were prayed for, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have called them to. And they prayed and fasted and laid hands on them. And uh, not only before, but also after the, uh, the Holy Spirit had revealed and selected these two men for the mission. So there's, there's both the action of the recognition within the community that these people are, are, are called by the Spirit, but, but you know, discerning that you need to discern the, the Spirit's call and also go with it. And, and uh, Paul does both of those things when he, um, you know, so discerning the call can be quite difficult because obviously he, he discerned something in Timothy which other people wouldn't have seen. This young lad, which kind of maybe slightly frail in his health or something that, you know, we pick these messages up. Um, and, you know, Jewish and Gentile in background. Um, but Paul sent something about him and wanted him to be a, an integral part of his team. Uh, and it takes the Holy Spirit to do that. Where's the church of God then? The church of Jesus is set up and it's like... Uh, you mean are you asking how, where is this phrase used yeah I, mean, I, I see it here it's, it's the code it's not church of Jesus it says church of God yeah. is that the common thing to uh, refer to the church in the, um, I, I don't recall yes and particularly you, you notice that the phrase kingdom of God is used yeah. quite a lot yeah. um 
so yeah I think it's probably fair to say that you can use these phrases um, I mean Paul Moore talks about the body of Christ being the on earth expression of his and of the church and I think we can and it becomes you know quite a big part of his teaching to the Corinthian church about the body of Christ um, and I think we can trace this back right back to his encounter on the road to Damascus where Jesus says to him Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then, then Jesus reveals to him that what he's doing to the believers in Jerusalem and, and intending to do in Damascus is hurting Jesus because, and so you can trace back Paul's understanding of the body of Christ right back to the occasion where Jesus says why are you persecuting me by persecuting my people on earth? Especially he was led to his straight streets of uh, Damascus and there was a man called Ananias mm -hmm. holding his hand brought him into the body yeah. of the disciples there. Yeah. And he stayed with them several days yeah, yeah. and listened to all the first-hand testimony of how Jesus was leading them through the three and a half year and how he respected yeah. and revealed to them. Yeah. And he had the first-hand information to see the, to experience the resurrection moment. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus talking to him from the heavens, mm -hmm. there was a triune God revealed to him. Yeah. And he was so impressed to him, wow, there was the body leading me to yeah. connect with Jesus' disciples. Yeah, yeah. And you notice in, in that episode that he's, um, he doesn't eat or drink for three days. Um, because he's got quite a lot of thinking and praying to do in that episode. And I like the way that the Lord isn't in a hurry. Just kind of, here's, here's this guy stewing for three days. Just. Uh, but, and then the Lord picks this guy, Ananias, just Mr. Nobody, in a sense, and tells him to go and lay hands on Saul. And he does. And so you get him saying, you know, brother Saul. And bang, he can see again. Just suddenly, like from scales from his eyes, he's able to see immediately. So just the impact both of the, what this man Ananias did, and, you know, combined with those three days of just churning and praying and just realizing that he's made such a major misunderstanding of what the character of God is about and what his mission is. And then suddenly, bang, this, this ordinary disciple comes and lays his hand on and he's, he sees in, a, in an instant. Yeah, it's a really powerful yeah, uh, occasion when, when you see that. And, and what's, it seems also interesting to kind of possibly speculate how well Paul might have known Jesus, whether he even kind of heard of him, we'll have heard of him by reputation um, while he was still in opposition but whether, uh, how much, I mean, we get the impression that he went away into the desert and basically was taught of the Lord for a series of years and then, and then got things straightened out and then had to you know, run it by the guys in Jerusalem to make sure that he wasn't uh, going down the wrong track anywhere. But so, yeah, he was, he was a prime example of someone who will be taught by the Lord, as it says in the prophet Isaiah, and your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Mm. Yeah.
Okay, that was a... Let's pick up... Um, yeah, I'm not quite sure yeah, how we got into that. Okay. Um, yeah, spiritual discernment and so on to um, appoint leaders. Um, but uh, there's also this caring for the church of God. So this kind of pastoral analogy. So I think we ought to also revisit Ezekiel. So if you've got your fingers still in there, turn the page. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 34. Um, because this actually um, is one of the best sections to get, even in a reverse sense, an un a clear understanding of what it means to be a pastor of God's people. So in this chapter, Ezekiel 34, the Lord is, through Ezekiel, strongly criticizing the leaders of Israel for the way that they have failed to pastor his flock. And we'll, maybe we'll read uh, all six verses. So um, the word of the Lord came to me. So this is Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 6. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, you who have, have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, and the lost you've not sought. With force and harshness you've ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with no one to search or seek for them. So here we have in verse 4, just re revisit verse 4, we have a really powerful summary of what the role of the shepherd is. Now to turn that into the positive sense, I would just say it like this. Um, The role of the shepherd is to feed the sheep, strengthen the weak, um, heal the sick, bind up the injured, gather the strays, and seek out the lost. Six things. And that difference between gather the strays and seek out the lost, that's an important difference. Gathering the strays are these people, the analogy would be those on the fringe of church, you know, that kind of sometimes turn up, sometimes don't. That's kind of easy. They're, they're just kind of straying or about to go off the wrong way. But then there's still the, the lost. You have to go out and seek them. The strays are the ones that are within, this, within reach but about to head off in the wrong direction. The lost takes a real effort to go and seek and save the lost. And so when Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd... We will see particularly from the, uh, subsequent verses here that he is really taking on a mantle of the role of God as the pastor of Israel when he says, I am the good shepherd, because he's again alluding to this passage here. And, okay, just to make it clear, I'll jump to verses 11. So, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, 
I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture and shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Do you see the way he's picking up these things? And when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, it's those who have ears to hear will know that he's talking about, he's lining himself up as this divine role to guide the people of Israel back in the right way. Okay, verse 29 on chapter 20. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, Paul also again references Ezekiel in this, Ezekiel 22. We won't go there, but this is Ezekiel 22, verses 26 and 27 with the image of the leaders of Israel as wolves uh, tearing the prey. But instead, just turn to, this is more of a challenge, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 3. It's, it's a slightly smaller book than Ezekiel. I'm, I'm just choosing this because it's actually, it's, a, it's like a summary of these verses in Ezekiel. Uh, So if you found it, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 3, he says, the officials officials within her, that is within within Israel, are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. And so there you see the leaders in that verse 3 are being described as evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. But also, Jesus himself uses this very same imagery. So turn over to Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. And he says, very plainly, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So yeah, you can. Um, it's a very kind of powerful imagery. Uh, it's not just kind of wayward teaching or kind of um, wasting people's time in the congregation. There's some, you know, teaching that takes people away from the Lord uh, is characterised in the strongest terms. So verse 30, and, and Paul goes on to say, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And um, this sounds like a prophetic revelation from Paul. And what I'm saying is it, it, it actually proves correct. And about eight years later, I would say, going to give or take, Timothy has to deal with issues in Ephesus. 
uh, and this is account recounted in 1 Timothy 4 and uh, 2 Timothy 2. Uh, we won't go there, but um, um, yeah, in in his um, pastoral epistle to Timothy, Paul talks about these people who are teaching wayward stuff. Um, so, but the one I want to actually draw your attention not so much to Timothy, but also to John's letters, John the Apostle, because John later on in the century also ministered at Ephesus, um, and he records this very situation in his letters. So let's look at um, 1 John, um, chapter 2, verse 19. I'll, I'll just read from verse 18 to slightly get the context. So this is 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So this is people drawing away disciples from the church by their teaching, okay? And then, um, just turn over the page to 1 John chapter two, verse, chapter four, verse two, where it says, he says, um, by this you know the spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, we know that in this time when John was preaching and teaching in Ephesus. They had problems with this heresy called um, uh, docetism. Well, you don't have to remember the word, but what it means is that people would claim that Jesus never really came in the flesh. It was just a kind of an apparition. You know, it's, this idea comes in the Gnostic Gospels as well, where they stress the perfection of the abstract and the spirit over the physicalness. And so you get this idea that actually no, no, Jesus would never kind of stoop that low to become flesh. So this, this was the heresy that uh, John actually had to address. And he's saying that those people who say that Jesus never came in the flesh do not have the spirit. You know, they're, they're mistaken. And he, Henry repeats it also in, his, um, in 2 John verse 7. I mean, his second letter says the same thing. So clearly... Um, Demonstrating that this kind of teaching had got a hold in Ephesus, and it's what um, Paul had prophesied in this speech. It's an implied denial of the resurrection in that as well. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Because if he wasn't really truly fully human, then resurrection we can spiritualize and uh, philosophize away and not yeah. really confront, yeah. confront the true reality of the power. Uh, absolutely yeah the whole thing comes tumbling down it's just yeah with we start we, with that we, idea we have this tendency in a lot of our churches today we, we focus on the exalted christ and we tend some, some sometimes to lose track of the, the human man that underlies all of that and that he still is yeah we, we have to have both of these and it's a tension, but there's value in going from one to the other and back again. You know, the, the humanity of Jesus. 
and, the, and his divinity and his glory and how these, how these things are so comfortable and complete together in his character. You know, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, standing at the side of God. Okay, uh, moving on, we need to just accelerate a little bit here. Okay, verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So yes, I mean, he's, this idea of be alert or watch or be on your guard. Again, he's referring to the role of those leaders as watchmen. That's he was. Uh, and three years, this is, where, this is where this idea comes from. Three years is the longest time Paul spent at any church, as far as we can tell. And his compassion and his passion and compassion comes out clearly in verse 31. You know, the idea of Paul as a towering intellectual is a long way from this reality. His great energy and his emotion and his tears were witnessed by everyone because he's able to say, um, you know, and to this group, you know that I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And these verses also contain this, content, this tension between both hard work, in other words, he did not cease day or night, and yet God's power through this phrase and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. So the power of the Lord is there through, mediated by his word and his grace that is open to all believers. Yet Paul still puts in a shift in making it known, you know, really works hard. Um, as, as an example, not just to his team, but his example echoes through history for all of us. But, but we also have this understanding that um, those who are in leadership also need to be built up through grace in order to be able to give out to their flock. You know, the, and it's, it's been a sad story that people end up burnt out if they're with too much responsibility, they don't have the, the opportunity or the means of receiving both uh, wisdom and teaching from other people or directly from the Spirit. They need to do that. They need to be able to uh, fill up in order to give out. And the end point in view is the heavenly, heavenly inheritance, you know, the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Okay, Paul goes on to say, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Uh, remember, he's talking to the Ephesians, and the, Cor the Corinthian church was characterized by low-born people and slaves. We know this. The majority of the city were slaves. Whereas Ephesus was a very wealthy city. There were no doubt many who wore jewelry and expensive clothes. And Paul says, you know that I coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothing. And you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and all who were with me. Not only does Paul set an example through paying for himself, in other words, in his tent-making ministry, um, but he goes beyond that and supports others in his team, as he says there, um, um, and those who are with me. 
In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul clearly did not exercise his right to be supported by the church. Now he explains this right in his letters to Timothy through this slightly curious phrase, don't muzzle the ox while it's um, uh, treading the grain. Yes, uh, it's kind of, kind of we're near the end, but come in. Yeah. yeah, so Paul explains that someone in leadership has a right to be uh, rewarded and, you know, uh, given help from the congregation, but he himself uh, does not take that. And he goes beyond that and actually, actually pays through his uh, capability of earning money for those within his team who do not have the skills or capacity to uh, earn money for themselves. And also, in Greco-Roman society, there were lots of itinerant teachers and philosophers who charged for public speaking. And Paul is really keen to avoid any kind of comparison between him and the... Yeah. I mean, they may have been quite entertaining, these... Um, these uh, people with their rhetoric and their philosophy and, and entering into debates, but they charged for the pleasure of listening to them. Paul was not at all like that. This quote from Jesus is not known from, from anywhere else, but actually we shouldn't really be surprised by that. You know, that John tells us in his gospel that if all the words from Jesus were written down, they'd fill the world. Uh, so um, I'm sure there'll be lots of stories and things to hear later on. Uh, now, the principle of returning a favour or giving equal measure for what you have received was deeply ingrained in this uh, Greco-Roman culture. So, um, what Paul is demonstrating, he's following in Jesus' steps, in other words, he's not just giving money, expecting money in return, but he's giving above and beyond that. And what I find really interesting here is that Luke, uh, Luke writes some very clear teaching from Jesus on this topic. So this is the, probably the last passage we'll look to. So if you turn over to Luke chapter 6. And I'll read from verse, uh, verses 32 to 36. Um, Luke 6 from verse 32 if you love those who love you what benefit is that for you even sinners love those who love them now let me just say what you need to know here is that the word sinners is a technical term referring to the Gentiles um, and sometimes Paul also uses the phrase Gentile sinners um, but in amongst the um, in the Jews when they said talking about the behavior of sinners um, they're really referencing Gentiles in general. Um, so that, that's, what we, that's how we need to, re not just people who are particularly morally compromised amongst their own community. I mean, they're taught that their ta tax collectors will be you know, in that category, in the eye of most of people in, in, that, in that culture. But sinners is specifically here addressing the characteristics of the Gentiles. So anyway, having said that, for even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that for you? Even sinners do the same. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be like sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So can you see Jesus' teaching is just so against this standard within Greco-Roman society, which means, you know, reciprocate generosity with those who are generous to you. No, no, this is not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is to be sons of, your, of, your, of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's, that's a tough one. And, you know, we, we never get through on the end of that one being gracious to those people who are not. <laughs> but it's, um, again, Paul was following the character of Jesus in the way that he conducted himself in his three years in Ephesus. And so uh, to finish off in verse 36, you can really see why this was such a, a tough party. You know, the, the, being roused by his speech and remembering the contribution that Paul must have made to this community in Ephesus over the space of three years. And then to say that he, they would never see him again. That's a tough one. Now, in fact, it's probably, uh, Paul did return to Ephesus. But in that situation, all he can see is imprisonment and conflict awaiting him whenever, when any city he goes to. So I can understand where he's coming from, saying that you won't see me again, or you probably won't see me again. Um, but, yeah, he does pitch up again. I mean, we, we get a hint from that in 1 Timothy 1, 3, that he did manage to return to Ephesus. But nevertheless, it's, it's a very um, bittersweet uh, farewell. So there we are. Oh, okay, a little bit over time, but thank you. One more. Anyway, any final contributions you want to, that you've been dying to share, and I've been talking too much? According to the Greek oral Roman culture, and in Rome, talk what you say is that it is gas, uh, it, it is reasonable and pleasing unto the Lord. If you present your body as a living sacrifice, what is the reference to the Greek oral Roman culture for this? He's talking about do you think it's something to do with the uh, temple prostitution? Because they are buying and selling the body to dedicate to the Roman, I mean, the, the Greek gods. Does it affect it to this kind of talking? Um. Well, I think most, I mean, the, the whole culture would, would understand about sacrifices. Um, for me, the most powerful thing about that st statement in Romans 12, verse 1, is the way, is the starting verses is by the mercies of God, which connects back to the three or four verses prior where he's talking about the amazing mercy of God in terms of mercy to the Gentiles, mercy to the Jews, going backwards and forwards, uh, which proving it that... that chapter 11 flows on to chapter 2 so he's talking about the what I would call the mercy master plan of God in how he deals with the Jews and then the Gentiles and, and then come the end all Israel will be saved because the pendulum will swing back to the Jewish people in the end and, and then he gets carried away in a doxology of how unsearchable is the, is the knowledge and the wisdom of God and then he goes and says therefore by the mercies of God 
present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the analogy is it's plain to people in that culture, which is not quite plain to people in our culture. They kind of get a bit nervous thinking about blood flowing down the altar. But uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a powerful thing. But so we have to maybe sometimes do a bit of work to pick up these illusions, which would have been powerful in that context. But yeah, we don't pick up everything from, from what we say. And that particularly, that's particularly the case in the Gospels rather than the Epistles, because, I mean, Paul makes a real effort to break stuff down and not to be too obscure. You know, he doesn't talk in Jewish idioms. He doesn't hint at scriptures and expecting people to understand. He, he does a fair bit of this cross-cultural explanation of how people should then behave in the light of understanding the truths of Jesus. Um, so I, it's actually in the Gospels where you're more likely to find these kind of cultural misunderstandings of what Jesus is talking about. Anyway, that's uh, a discussion for another time. <laughs> okay, thanks. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.